Hey all, I'm really excited that the Talking Adaptive PE podcast is back, and I'm also really excited to tell you that we officially have a sponsor. JustAdaptIt.com is the official sponsor of the Talking Adaptive PE podcast, and it is the ultimate site for adaptive PE teachers. From brief videos that are showing you best practices, to curriculum ideas, to even finding this podcast, it's the place to go if you're an adaptive PE teacher. So be sure to head over to justadapted.com as I'm sure you will find it as useful as I do. Now I hope you enjoy this show as we bring you Professor Justin Hagel and we talk about some of the difficulties between research and putting it into practice in the field. Welcome to the Talking Adaptive PE Podcast. We're back after some time off. I got really busy there. Apologize, everyone. I appreciate everyone's patience waiting for the show to come back. But I'm really excited we're back. And I'm here with an old friend from my SUNY Brockport days who is now one of the leading voices in the field, quite honestly. And I'm here with Justin Hagel. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. It's it's good to see you, man. It's good to catch up after it feels like, what, a decade or so, probably, which is kind of crazy. I think it might even be longer Look as I look at my gray hair here, but you're absolutely right. Um, Justin, I know a lot about you having um, done a little bit of undergrad and then grad school with you, but why don't you just tell everyone about yourself, where you are these days, what you're doing and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, as Chris had said, or as you had said, I, I came from SUNY Brockport with my bachelor's in undergrad, both in adapted PE and PE. Uh, I went down to teach down um, at the New York City Department of Ed for a number of years, uh, taught at a school for autistic kids in Queens, which was awesome. Uh, went out to Ohio State for a few years to do a PhD with Dave Peretta. And I've been back here at ODU, which is in Norfolk, Virginia. Virginia, um, ever since 2015. Uh, at ODU, uh, I'm a professor that teaches and uh, works in the area of adapted PE. I direct a center here called the Center of Movement, Health, and Disability that we uh, put together a couple of years ago, uh, run a few different programs, undergraduate program, master's program, PhD program. I work with a lot of really cool and interesting PhD students out here. Um, I'm also lucky to work on a few different national uh, training programs. One called the MAMC is uh, eight different universities training doctoral students together around the country, which is quite a bit of fun. And now we have a new version, which is only three schools, myself, University of Georgia, and University of Illinois, where we're training 15 more scholars around the country in APE. So uh, that one's actively recruiting. If people are interested, shoot me an email. Very interesting. So uh, at ODU, you offer, tell us a little bit about the Adapted Phys Ed program. Every state's different, why I ask that. So uh, I've explained on the pod before, but for anybody that's newly joining us, um, in New York State, at least at the time when I went through, we did not have an Adapted PE credential. You could basically take one undergrad class and then boom, you can technically teach it. Um, and then, but then I, you know, we, you and I chose to go on for a master's in it. We, we, you know, that was offered, but in California, you actually do have to be credentialed. And so can you maybe tell us about both ODU and the the degrees you offer in adaptive phys ed, but also maybe what does Virginia require for our listeners? Yeah. So in the state of Virginia, we don't have a teaching, uh, license or credential for APE. There's some rumblings at the state that they're interested, but we don't have it today at ODU. We have a bachelor's in PE, and that's, you know, the typical one APE course, which is kind of standard at a lot of places. Uh, we have a master's in APE that we started in 2015, and then we have a PhD in health and sport pedagogy where we focus on adapted PE uh, research and practice. I think right now we've got about eight PhD students who are enrolled here that are focused specifically in APE. 
um, all doing different types of work. And then we've got a few alumni also, one of which is at the University of Georgia, Nicole Kirk, and two out in Norway, um, Stephen Katie Holland, which is kind of also cool, uh, getting to learn a little bit more about what APE looks like in a different country. Yeah, I think globally, it's actually it's actually really, really fascinating to uh, to learn about it. And there's actually, I've a lot of times when I do find a research article, it's, I often find that sometimes, many times the authors are based uh, in Europe and other parts of the world. So why don't you, I don't know that all of our listeners maybe understand what goes into a PhD. Can you maybe give people the 30 second to two minute version of, you know, when you're a PhD, you really become an expert in the field, but you're very hyper-focused usually in an area, I believe. Do you guide your students to identify that area? Do they typically come, do they need to have it selected before they get to you? Can you maybe walk people through just kind of, you know, if, if people wanted to become a PhD, we need really strong college level researchers and teachers as well. So if they wanted to, what goes into that? Yeah, so it's different for every university to a degree, right? So a PhD is a research oriented degree. And so, you know, a lot of people who are coming into these degrees already have like great experiences at really strong master's programs in APE. So like you come from Brockport or La Crosse or Cal State Long Beach or um, Slippery Rock or UVA, these master's programs, I mean, for the most part, you know everything you need to know about like how to teach. That's not really what a PhD is about. It's more about how to develop and construct knowledge, uh, how to conduct the research. Um, and if people are interested, like you don't need to come in with your finite idea for what you're going to do your study on. I mean, I, when I got to Ohio State, I didn't really know what I was doing as far as research was concerned. I had an idea of a population I was interested in, but um, I was helped quite a bit, like guided quite a bit along the path to figure out what I wanted to do um, here. And so in, in that way, each school is a bit different here. Um, I think there's a few things we don't do and we can't do research-wise that if a student said that's what they wanted to do, we really wouldn't be a good fit for them. But more broadly, if students are curious and interested, then for the most part, I think we can figure out how to help them out uh, with moving forward with their research. Would you advise an individual that someone, let's, let's just, I'll just use me. Let's just say I, I currently obviously teach in public school system, have a master's degree. I'm intrigued by a PhD. Is it worth my time, money, and effort to get a PhD just to have a PhD? Or should you really only get it if you want to teach at the college level? Do you have any advice there? Yeah, it's a good question, man. And, and this question comes up a lot. Um, I think for me personally, if you're happy in what you're doing and you're not looking for a change of career um, and you're good at what you do, I don't know why you would move on to another degree to me like it's it's um it's part of a journey toward like doing the research and understanding knowledge and working in higher ed um, i don't know if i would do it if i didn't have that same you know interest or passion toward moving toward higher ed um, but I, I mean i have known people that have gone into phd programs and went back to k-12 settings so um, i just don't personally think that i would understand why somebody would do it yeah, I guess that's where it's at. Yeah, I, you know, I, the only thing I would say is that, and maybe they don't, an individual wouldn't need to go for a PhD for this, but um, if somebody was really interested in trying to develop research within their own line of work that they're doing so that maybe they could pull answers out that they're looking for, um, because I, I don't know that I left grad school uh, with a great understanding of how to conduct research, right? You know, I mean, did a little bit, did a synthesis project, et cetera. But, you know, that the second I stepped off campus, I'm pretty sure all that knowledge was gone. So that would that would be the only thing. But I don't know that it's worth actually all the time and effort and research that you would do to get a degree to then be like, oh, my 
my caseload of 55, I now know how to construct a little mini study, you know, so. Um, but, I, but I think what, what you're what you're speaking toward might be part of the necessity for relationships between really good teachers or really interested teachers and people in academia. Like, mm -hmm. I don't think that teachers necessarily need those skills if they're partnered up with faculty, because most of us, like most faculty, to be frank, don't have the same teaching skills we would have had years ago if we would have went into teaching like I left teaching 11 years ago now which is kind of crazy to think about so I would assume most of my skills in teaching have expired at this point yeah. um, but if there are teachers in schools who have interest in like learning how to like blend their practical knowledge with my research knowledge I think that would be really fun and um, yeah I'm really hopeful to actually develop more relationships like that I've been making some concerted efforts to do so recently to try to bring back some of the concepts that we work on in research and scholarship to the actual schools. Yeah, I love hearing that because I have found and I've talked about it on Scott McNamara's pod before, and I even was a very, very minor contributor to um, some work Scott um, and Brad Wiener were involved with that we put a paper out about you know, how do we get research to the teachers that are practicing? And, you know, where do those teachers find research? So I, I'd love to hear you say that, because I do think there is not enough of that, I guess, so to speak, where, you know, the cutting edge research that's coming out isn't always ending up in the hands of the people actually doing the practicing of the teaching. So that would be great if we could find a channel to do that. But uh the real reason I brought Justin on is I wanted to give him a chance. He does really great work at ODU, so I wanted to give him a chance to talk about that. But Justin wrote, a, uh, he co-wrote, and I'll let him give a shout out to his co-author. I want to make sure that gets out there. But Scott McNamara recommended the book to me. Um, it's actually a pretty quick read, everyone. I know sometimes we talk about research and it's hard to get through. This was a really quick read, um, but I found it to be really great in terms of what I do as a teacher and taking it and just getting me to think think. So the book is called Teaching Disabled Children in Physical Education, Disconnections Between Research and Practice. Uh, so Justin, why don't you give uh, just a quick synopsis of the book and then we'll go, I have, I have some questions and we'll go a little deeper into it. Yeah, man. So the lead author on that is uh, a buddy of mine out at Leeds Beckett University named Anthony Marr. Um, started working with him a number of years ago. I think some of the most interesting stuff I do is with Anthony. Um, he's a very like thoughtful person, very deep thinker. So it helps somebody like myself, who's, you know, not nearly as deep of a thinker as him uh, to get some of these interesting concepts out. Um, but that book started in like some conversations between Anthony and I about what we do in practice or what like faculty suggest that teachers do in practice. And then the reasons behind why we suggest people do things in practice. And um, we wanted to further explore whether or not there was actually like empirical support um, and specifically support from disabled people about their experiences with these various pedagogical practices um, to support the practice before we, you know, suggest uh, or disseminate them. Um, or if there's this uh, disconnection between what we're saying we should do and what we actually do. Um, so that was the general premise of the book. And then we basically broke it up by uh, impairment categories. Um, to talk about what data existed to support uh, common pedagogical practices that are suggested. Yeah, that's what I love about the book is that you have a chapter on autism and you have a chapter on deaf and hard of hearing. You have a chapter on visually impaired. You have a chapter on cognitive disabilities. You have a chapter on physical disabilities. You basically cover the, the gamut. Broadly speaking, can you maybe talk about your findings, like a 30,000 foot view of your findings, and then we'll dig deeper after that? <laughs> 
Yeah, I think um, I think that it, it appears like we faculty members and researchers, not researchers, faculty members and maybe scholars tend to suggest that teachers do a lot of different things without really having the support to do those things. And, and by support, I mean two different things. And so first, we have a lot of like practice-based papers and books that are out, uh, like Jopard papers or Palestra papers or strategies papers or textbooks that basically like give you a list of things and like kind of uh, what I started referring to as like the bag of tricks, right? Like here's this bag of tricks you could do to teach blind kids within PE settings. Um, so we have that, but what we don't have are studies or studies like empirical studies that support those practices and say that they work. Um, and the second thing we don't have is research where we've spoken with blind or visually impaired people or disabled people, and they've said, like, this works well for me. And in fact, there are some pedagogical practices that we suggest that when you look at research that talks with disabled people, They've said that those practices further alienate them um, or exclude them than not doing the practices. And so that's an example of one of those while we're on that topic. Yeah. So we've uh, we've started to do studies where we talk specifically with blind or visually impaired people about their experiences within PE. Uh, we've probably done like 25 studies like that at this point, And we started targeting specific um, strategies. And so one, for example, is peer tutoring. So we talked to a bunch of kids about peer tutoring and the concept of it. And so even when we talked to these kids, none of them actually experienced it. So we had to explain to them what peer tutoring meant. Um, and a lot of the kids had mentioned that, you know, like to be assigned another kid to basically be your friend is um, a, a bit insulting. You know, like the idea that another kid needs to be assigned to you to then take like a, a role above you to then teach you things is more ableist than I think even just letting kids try to survive within the class. Um, and that's a lot of what the kids had said. We also talked to kids about like paraeducators and what to do with paraeducators. And a lot of them had mentioned to us that if you have an adult that's within close proximity in a class full of kids, it just makes you stand out to a degree that no other kids want to come play with you. And so like these are some problems that I think when we don't talk to kids and we don't talk to disabled people about their experiences, we gloss over this as teachers or scholars or what have you. I think what's a little bit difficult when I think of my population, Justin, is that I serve a uh, population that my district designates as moderate to severely disabled. I've said it again on the pod. I don't love the terminology, but that's what they use. So I'll go with it. Um, so, but I, I'll, I'll recategorize it as, you know, they have significant needs of support typically. Unfor there are definitely kids on my caseload where those conversations could happen. Like, hey, how do you feel in PE? Like, do, do you enjoy it? Do you like this? Do you like that? But it's tough for a, a big percentage of my population to be able to extrapolate that sort of information. Do you have any suggestions or ideas ar around specifically that and how maybe you could construct an environment that still is within the framework you're kind of talking about of having a disabled person's perspective? Yeah, and that's probably the question I get asked most often from teachers when I start bringing up the idea of like talking to kids to co-construct like pedagogical strategies. And I think there's a lot of different ways that kids communicate, right? And so like We've done some studies with kids with more significant impairments where instead of asking them questions, we've asked them to draw different things within their PE setting. And then <clears throat> we'll ask them questions about their drawing. And, you know, instead of getting long, like verbose answers, we might get like shorter answers. Um, but it would make more sense because of the drawing and we could like pinpoint specific parts of the drawing then. Um, we've also done studies where we've asked kids to like photograph parts of their gym if like drawing is not 
something that's within their skill set and then like had you know short yes or no question answer uh conversations with them about like what was in the photograph and so i mean i think being open-minded to what communication means is is really important and it, none of these strategies are going to work with every kid either you know like there's just some kids that like might not be able to share what they think with their expressive language skills uh, but they're i think trying and putting that effort in is pretty critical i, I really appreciate that answer and that you just didn't basically shrug and like yeah we don't have an answer in that one yet good luck let me know what you find and you you, you offered up some solutions that you very candid were like hey every kid's different maybe this won't work but at least try these and those are ones i personally hadn't thought of and if the if the listeners could be watching they would have seen me nodding my head like oh the light bulb's going off a bit so thank you for that uh, I usually do the shrug. I don't know what you're talking about thing, but you know, right. I'm trying to be a little better about it. <laughs> I appreciate that as, as are the listeners, I'm sure. So, you know, you, you've spoken about the book broadly and, and you did give that specific example for VI kids. You know, I, when I went through the book, there were, there were some specific ones and I'll, I'll withhold my example for a second to see what you have to say, but there were specific ones that jumped out at me because of the populations I typically work with that I'm like, oh, I definitely figured this was a best practice, but, and you're not saying it isn't a best practice, what you're saying. And this is a theme throughout the book. I want the listeners to understand is you're basically saying we're taking these ideas from other parts of special education and academia and then just putting it in phys ed and saying like, oh, it's a best practice. Here you go. You need to be doing this because this is how autistic learners learn or students with autism, wherever we're going to put the word. Um, but are there any specific examples from the findings that stood out to you that you're, that made a light bulb go off for you? I think the book really represented a, a lot of thought uh, over a lot of time and a lot of conversations between Anthony and I. So I don't know if I don't know if I would say I was surprised by any of it because a lot of it is like our brainchild from um, all those conversations. I think some of them could be viewed a little more um, controversially. Like I think talking about ABA and really bringing to light some of the challenges that autistic people have to have spoken about with ABA and um, it, even though it's such a accepted practice in a lot of schools, including the school that I worked in myself, or at least something that our school thought was ABA at the time. And, and perhaps that's really what I should say is it's not ABA, it's whatever we contrived ABA to be within our school. Um, I think that's one of the more controversial statements we made that perhaps this isn't the route to go. And maybe we need to think a little further about like what it is, how it is that we're treating autistic kids within classes. Um, but I don't know if anything was overly surprising to me. But again, I, you know, we wrote the book, so maybe it's hard to be surprised by what you do. Sure. Uh, so on the ABA piece really quickly, what's interesting to me is that um, if you're on Twitter and, you know, there's all these subsets of Twitter, right? So there's there's NBA Twitter. If you're an NBA fan or in our space, there's definitely an adapted phys ed Twitter. Great sharing goes on there. There's also like an an autistic Twitter, I'm going to call it, where people with autism that are able to use Twitter and things of that nature, they jump on there and, you know, th they speak about their experiences of ABA. And I very rarely see a positive <laughs> reflection on ABA. And these are individuals that actually can share with us. And they, and they may have been a student in elementary school that at that time didn't have the ability to express themselves in such a way to say like, what are you doing here? Obviously aren't old enough to conceptualize it, but now they're at a phase in their life where they're able to. So I find that really interesting. So it's interesting that that was considered, that that was deemed controversial when I feel like we have a lot of firsthand accounts now 
that are coming out to support exactly what you're saying. So I think that's really interesting for you to share. The other one that jumped out at me is um, is video modeling within the autistic population, whether it's video modeling or even pictures, right? Because that's, I mean, that's ingrained in us from like the second you take a course in adapted phys ed, I feel like, like, oh, uh, individuals with autism use, they, you, they, you need a picture schedule, you need this, you need that, that's what works well. well I can also, I can also say that my four-year-old benefits from that and she is not on the spectrum, right? So like, it's that, but why don't you, why don't you, uh, you know, specifically with video modeling, there, there's no research to actually support that it's a best practice, right? Yeah, there's very little, right? that says video modeling is effective or more effective than not using video modeling. And I, I, and part of this speaks to, for me, not the weakness of video modeling, but perhaps just the pancake effect of research in our field. And so by that, I mean, like in our field, we've probably got, especially in the United States, maybe 25 to 30 people who are actively pursuing research in our field. And so that might seem like a lot when you compare our field to like 1982 when the field was you know essentially born, but 30 to 40 people in a country or perhaps 200 people worldwide, it's really not that many people. And so we have, and and we all have really varying research interests. And so you know I don't personally want to pursue video modeling. There might be one or two people in the world that are pursuing that in PE. And so what we have is we've got a lot of breadth to what we know, but we've got very little depth to what we know. And so hence the pancake effect. And I think with video modeling, again, we don't we don't really know if it works. We don't have the we don't have the data to suggest it works. We don't have data that says this absolutely doesn't work, but we don't know if it's better than presenting um presenting without video modeling, just presenting in real life. What we've done, though, is we've taken findings, again, from other fields and essentially said that if it works in another field, it must work in in the P, in PE or in the gym, which is ironic because we spend so much time as a field arguing that we're unique to other fields because we're in such a big, dynamic, fast-paced environment. And this is one of those, like, have your cake and eat it too scenarios to a degree. Yeah, that was probably the one that and that happens pretty early on in the book. So I think it kind of hooked me in a way, too, that I was just like, oh, like this has been preached, so on and so forth. So, you know, Justin, the the theme in the book is kind of and the title is, you know, it's creative in that it's, you know, the dis is in parentheses, mm -hmm. disconnections. And we've spent a lot of time on here basically just reinforcing the fact that what we think are best practices could be, but we don't have the research to back that up. But what would you tell that teacher out there that's listening? Because the podcast is intended for the everyday teacher. What would you tell the teacher that's listening that all of a sudden is now getting anxiety in their head because they think they're not using best practices and they're concerned? You know, what would you tell them? You know, where should they be finding best practices then? What are are there any off the top of your head that, you know, hey, for starters, one, two and three are definitely best practices in our field kind of across populations and maybe that's just good teaching is good teaching too, at the end of the day or the foundations of it. So is there, you know, what would you say to that teacher that all of a sudden the wheels are going and the train's starting to go off the rails in their head and they're like, oh, I, I might not be doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's a good place to be as a teacher. I think teachers questioning themselves and questioning how and why they're doing things and in what order they're doing things is really important. I actually think that teachers who feel really comfortable with what they're doing all the time, it's a little dangerous because that means that perhaps you're not willing to change or be reflective to the needs of students because you know, like you're the expert, right? So I think that feeling a little bit of anxiety that you need to be doing the best by your students and you're not sure if you are, I actually think that's what I 
love about teachers is like that unsureness because that's what makes you motivated to do more and do better. Um, to me, like there's a really simple answer to a lot of things, which is, and this is, you know, this is new in the last five years in my mindset, which is that every pedagogical practice that I would suggest would be rooted in the voices of the kids or the needs of the kids, whatever's expressed by the kids. And so rather than me saying like, you know, peer tutoring is a evidence-based practice that everybody should use, I would say, speak with kids, speak with your students and see whether or not they think that the arrangement that you're trying to construct is going to be helpful for them. Um, and I know it's hard to talk to a lot of kids, man, and PE teachers and adaptive PE teachers have tons of kids on their course load. And I know all these things to be true. But I also think that if you put concerted effort into it, you can speak to a large proportion of your kids about what they want and what they perceive to be best. So, you know, not just what they want to be taught, but how they want to be taught it. Um, and that's the way that I would suggest molding pedagogical decision making. Yeah, it's it's, you know, I had a unfortunate case um, on my caseload last year where an individual, a student at the school was um, having headaches and it turned out to be a brain tumor. And after the surgery, they had they had lost their vision and took some time to come back to school. Well, all of a sudden that student's now mine. Right. You know, um, and so trying to get that student back into physical education and, and remember having an adult with them was new and and all of these things are new. And so just having those conversations, are you comfortable doing this? Are you not doing this? So what we did was, is I would support on certain days and be there and I would instruct the aid and I would, I would, but I was always checking in with a student and I'm, I'm happy about that. But I, I see that in other parts of my teaching, there's other students I could be checking in with more. So I think that's, I think that's a great point. And at the very least, if anybody takes from this this interview, what what they can take away is at least are they are they checking in with their kids, you know? And you offered some creative ideas to do that, you know, whether it's yeah, man. Well, and if you go if you go on Brad Wiener's website, him and I developed uh, like some. I mean, he developed it really. He he's insane with the amount that he does. But I think there's a there's a check sheet on there for teachers to even like use to talk with kids just to like get feedback and such too. Um, and so Brad and I have talked a lot about some of these uh, ideas that I I believe in. And what he's done is he's taken them and made them actually useful, whereas most of my ideas are not that useful. <laughs> yeah, Brad, I, I'd suggest that to anyone and anybody teaching, just Google Brad Wiener's Adaptive Physical Education website. Um, he was uh, a previous guest on the podcast and um, he puts out really practical things for the everyday teacher that you can use, whether it's assessments, report examples. Um, so give, give him Brad a little shout out there. You know, uh, Justin, on this topic too, what's interesting is um, for whatever reason, I've had a number of students within the last, I, I'm going to say five to 10 years, because they've stayed with me as they've progressed through their educational career, but they just happen to be kids with spina bifida. And I phrase it that way because they're typical kids. They happen to use a wheelchair to access the world. They happen to do this. And so, you know, they're the ones too that I, that was tr so much education had to go into the general PE teacher to be like, why don't you ask them what they're comfortable with? You know, why don't you do, why don't you have a conversation with them? Why don't you know, here's some, here's some ideas, here's some equipment I can give you. But at the end of the day, you are their teacher. And so like, you need to have these conversations. And I, I just don't know that we're preparing the general PE teachers to do that enough. Oh, yeah, man. I, I don't think so. I think, you know, this kind of moves into um, an idea that, again, Anthony and I, the same author from the book, 
uh, have talked about quite a bit and written about a bit now, which is moving away from this idea of like inclusion as just a place that like kids exist within. And so oftentimes, and I think when you and I were coming through Brockport, inclusion was just like this place where disabled kids and non-disabled kids existed together. Um, where Anthony and I are going is to reconceptualize the concept of inclusion as a subjective experience that you can only understand from actually speaking with and asking kids whether they feel like a sense of belonging, acceptance and value within a setting. And so with regard to inclusion for us, like teachers should be reaching out to each and every kid and asking questions about how they feel within the setting, because just being within that class is not enough. So if it's a child who has spina bifida in the class and they're being probably discarded by a typical PE teacher because the typical PE teacher probably sees a wheelchair and thinks, what am I going to do with this? You know, um, if they would just talk to the kid and say, like, what are your needs? How do I enhance your sense of belonging within this setting? Or, you know, you don't need to use those words with kids, but, you know, something of that nature. I think I think it, it's just such a simple solution to talk to a child and find out what their needs are. Well, and so I, a, some of the goals I support with those kids are actually self-advocacy goals. Right. So it's a goal on the IEP that is around self-advocacy and talking to the teacher. Again, that's a goal that multiple team members usually support because it can transcend environments. And it's not just a phys ed thing. But can you know, if you're going into a tennis unit, can you go up to the teacher and be like, hey, can I can I use that foam ball that moves a little slower for me? Or, hey, is it OK if I hit the ball off of more than one bounce? You know, just these little tiny things of giving the students that. But then obviously also to your to your point of, uh, you know, the teacher also being aware of that. But yeah, I've, I've heard you speak quite a bit on that piece about inclusion and that maybe we we just, it's like a stick it term. We just stick it on things and say, oh, it's inclusion. And, and we see it again across domains within special education. Like, oh, they're going to inclusion. It's like, well, they're actually going to a sign language class right now that like yeah. they are, in, ideally they are included in, but have we actually asked them? I don't know that we've actually asked them. And by no. the way, flip side of that as those and and this is an area I've, I've done with my teaching because in my district for the teachers to get their prep they typically attach it to physical education and I was like I find it unethical for my kids to just go to PE without me supporting in some capacity right I really like that was that was hard for me so I was like so I'm gonna go and I'm gonna include the greatest extent possible and when I can't I'm gonna have a parallel environment and do my thing and hit what I need to do right that's what inclusion means to me in terms of making it what is um equitable and ethical but um I think what I'm saying, where I'm going with this is, is I'm going on a diatribe now, but is that, do we also check in with those gen ed kids that get placed in those environments to say, are you, is this a positive experience for you? Do you feel included? Are you this? Are you that? Um, because if you're actually making an inclusive environment, it needs to be a place for everyone. Yeah. It's a good question about the the non-disabled kids. And um, the answer I'd give people typically is there are so many kids, there are so many faculty and researchers that care about non-disabled kids that I'm going to go ahead and care about disabled kids. Um, but I do think it's a good point that like these experiences are interrelated where like if there are non-disabled kids feeling like they belong and then there are not or disabled kids in the same setting, like they should all be experiencing that same type of belongingness and connectedness um, to feel included. But I do think, you know, going back to that point about, you know, what we're doing as a field, I do think we've been obsessed for years in PE and adapted PE about constructing this like illusion that inclusion exists. That's like one of my favorite phrases, illusion of inclusion. But um, rather than really talking to kids with or without disabilities, 
about whether they feel included. So as long as people think kids are included, we tep- we typically just kind of move on without talking to them. And, and to me, like you had brought up a different context, perhaps like a self-contained context. Why can't kids feel included within a self-contained space with a bunch of other disabled kids? Like could kids at schools for the blind feel like they belong, feel accepted, feel valued? I think they can. Um, this seems to be a departure from like the typical perspective of inclusion in the U.S. That again makes people a little uncomfortable. But I think inclusion is not space dependent. I think it could be in a bunch of different spaces. And it's 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 more a sense of feeling, maybe right. I, that's what I'm taking yeah. from it. Words, sense of feeling. So you could, you know, there could be a student that feels more included in that self-contained than saying, "All right, here we go. Everybody's going to PE. Oh, you're included. Look at us. We're great. We're doing it." Well, so and if, if that's the case, why do we care where they're educated? Shouldn't we care more about how they feel within where they're educated? Yeah, no, it's I could I could go on and on about this. Well, I was going to ju- I was going to jump back too though, on this point of like checking with kids and go back to the example of the, the kids with spina bifida that I have that, you know, they're they're going to go to college. They're going to get degrees. They're going to have jobs. They're you know, they're just kids that happen to have a disability. Uh, aren't they all just kids that happen to have a disability though? Chris? I know. No, no, no. They, they, right. But when I, you know, it's, it's hard for me to, I was phrasing that and how I have to like educate the general PE teacher about it, but you're absolutely correct. And you caught me there for sure. But I, um, they, I find so many teachers be like, well, I don't know what to do with them. I'm like, well, they're, they're, they're a kid. Like, what would you do? But where I'm, where I'm trying to go with this is that I think it'd be great if we checked in with them. And you know, if you're, if you have the football stadium and the turf field for three weeks and this individual uses a wheelchair, could they maybe go in the gym with a different teacher that they're not on their roster, but you know, they can get in there and do a badminton unit instead because it's more accessible and they want to do that instead. They don't want to go down to the field and feel like they have to push on the turf and do something. You know, we, we, we force these kids to do it as opposed to getting creative and thinking outside the box of, and checking in and be like, Hey, these are what all the teachers are teaching these next three weeks. Like which, which one would you like to be a part of? Oh, you want to go to dance? Cool, go to dance. You want to go to this? And maybe that needs to be more broadly across not even our kids. And just maybe that's what, because PE is struggling, right? Like, and we want kids to leave with skills that they can participate in a lifetime of physical activities. And it's just not happening. Yeah. So Dude, it's, it's just so simple. Like the idea of choice within PE is like this. It's another one of those fictitious things, right? Like there are some districts that I've heard of that do really nice jobs where they have three options and kids self-select into those options, right? And I love it because, you know, you're not forcing kids to do stuff. And like when you start talking about lifelong physical activity, you don't force adults to pick something. Like not all adults have to go play basketball. They don't all have to go you know, play flag football. Adults have volition. We make choices. And so like in high school years, why aren't kids making choices about what they can and cannot do? All right, Justin, you are getting pre-service teachers ready to enter the field, enter into our space of adapted physical education. Also, it sounds like maybe some might just be general PE teachers, but you're giving them the background to work with kids with disabilities. But um, in terms of adapted phys ed, what are some trends that you're seeing in the field as you're as you're preparing these teachers to go out into it? Huh, that's a good question. What are trends in the field for pre-service teachers being trained? Or no, that they'll encounter as teachers that you're trying to get them ready for. Uh, it's tough. You know, I think anything that's happening in schools, unfortunately, like I get it secondhand, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I know some things like 
um, like large class sizes are still happening. Um, things like uh, districts, at least in Virginia, like not even needing, like not pursuing teaching license licensed teachers because of teacher shortages is happening. Um, I think for us, like the big thing that we've started doing in APE specifically with pre-service teachers is um, we've decreased our focus on the bag of tricks, like the pedagogical strategies, and more so are moving toward trying to think about why we do certain things. So not just the what, but more so the why and thinking more deeply philosophically about like what disability is and what inclusion means and what our roles are as teachers within schools. Um, because to be to be frank, I think the bag of tricks is something you could probably learn from a book, but I think the deep deeper thinking about like what you're doing and why you're doing it um, can really change the way in which teachers think about education and their role within schools. That's interesting. It's very different than what we came up through, I think, right? So that's interesting. What would you, where would you tell uh, current teachers in adept physical education, where would you tell them to stay up to date on the latest best practices and research? What, have you found somewhere that you think is the best place for them to go to get information? I know a lot of teachers don't check, read research. I think they should, to be quite honest. I think there needs, a, you know, I said it earlier, but is there somewhere you would advise them to go? Yeah, it's that that's a tough question because we because I think that like the teacher focused channels like your Joe Birds and your Palestras, unfortunately, are not always research supported. Um, a lot of times those are um, like. Like opinion based rather than uh, data based, um, but then when you look at the flip side, like your adapted physical activity quarterly or general teaching and physical education journals. They're not really written in accessible ways. Um, this is something that's been on my mind a lot and you know, something that we're trying to figure out how to work better through. So like I had mentioned before, we have this center here that we're working with and we've even started constructing uh, videos or infographics about our research to try to like essentially show like the highlight reel for what we're doing and how it's applicable to different contexts. And so I told you before, I, I linked up with Matt Barker through Brad Wiener, and we have um, the first video we've created together, which or which shows like what does it mean for inclusion to be a subjective experience. And I really like the video. I think he did an awesome job making it. Um, and I hope it's stuff like that that starts to like speak to teachers. Uh, we're trying to push it out on social media, uh, but I, there's got to be other ways to push it out, too. Yeah. So I, I would also think, too, that, um, you know, you're connected with myself and I'm a lead within a large district. If you can if you and others, not, it doesn't have to all fall on you. Uh, but if the if the uh, academia field in our space can have those touch points with those of us, you know, Brad's leading in his district down in Virginia. Um, and if you can connect with the Chicago's and the New York's of the world to be like, Hey, we think this is powerful. Can you share this out with your teachers? I think that's also a way to get to not everyone by any means, but a good chunk of practitioners. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. I mean, you know, we live in a world right now that that's so connected on video. Like, I mean, we're on zoom right now, right? Like, there's really no reason other than effort that we couldn't get lead teachers from a bunch of different cities on Zoom with a handful of faculty to talk about first, like what are faculty doing and how could that help with being within schools, but probably more importantly, like what's going on in schools and what can faculty do to support that and like what what research is needed rather than us just like twisting around in the wind, not thinking about what's actually practical within schools. 
to me that that's that seems so simple you know like making a call out there for you know open-minded faculty um, who are happy to like figure out what's going on in schools and how to support it as well as like you know teachers who have strong opinions that we can you know work together as a group um, it really just takes somebody to kind of you know make that call and get people together you know absolutely um all right last question for you justin you've been so uh, gracious with your time and i'm grateful and uh i'm really excited for all the information shared but do you have a, and it's kind of a fun question, do you have a single piece of advice that you give your students before they leave you and go out into the field? Man. Uh, do I have a single piece of advice? You know, you don't have to be gracious for my time, man. I'm more happy to take up your time, you know? And I think um, I think that advice is probably similar to what I'll say right now, which is like, don't don't lose contact, you know? Like, there are some teachers who have been out there now since I got here. And I'm like, every time I hear from them or I, I see them at a conference, I'm just stoked, you know? Um, and there's people who will hit me with an email after years and just say like, Hey, what do you think about this scenario? Um, or PE teachers like will randomly get my email address and say like, what do you think of this? And, you know, if I could act as a sounding board, cause I'm not going to know the answer. Like that's a fact. I don't have any answers to anything, but I'm happy to listen and I'm happy to be a sounding board and maybe um, think of how to answer together. And so that's something I tell the students all the time is like, just because you're graduating doesn't mean you're leaving. And I don't think it's any different than what I'd tell anybody else in the country. Like if I could be helpful or if a faculty member could be helpful, like don't be afraid to reach out because we're just people in a different job, but in the same field. And, you know, just like how you all you know, are benefiting perhaps from some of the writing we're doing, we're probably benefiting more from talking and learning from you all. So I think that's it, man. We need to stay interconnected. That's the most important thing, I think. And on that point, where can listeners connect with you if they are in or if they're interested by anything they've heard and they want to they want to learn more or are you on the social channels? Yeah, man, I, I don't do Facebook because um, I found Facebook to be bad for my mental health during COVID. So I got rid of that, but um, I'm on the Twitter. I try to be active. Uh, we have a center Twitter and then I have my own, which is Justin underscore Hagel at Twitter. <laughs> and then I just started using Instagram because um, I learned that in, you know, around the world, there are different like social media platforms that are more popular in other places. And Instagram apparently is really popular in a bunch of places. So um, I'm trying to learn through that. Too. I don't know how to use it. Um, I'm lucky to have doc students who know how to use it. So they try to teach me. Um, but yeah, any anything or you just email me. Awesome. Justin, I appreciate the time. Great information today. Uh, thanks for joining the show.